you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, I'll turn to the Old Testament book of Ezra, chapter 3. I want to also encourage you, and uh, if you would, to remember Justine. Uh, Justine's homesick today. Uh, Anne is homesick. Um, she was uh, she tested positive for COVID on Friday, and so that's the reason she and uh, Justin are not here today. So if you will pray for uh, both of those families as they, uh, as they continue to recover. Um, Thank you all for gathering and praying for uh, Debbie. Uh, we do come oftentimes uh, uh, here to our church family with heavy hearts and struggles and hardships. And um, I just bless the Lord for We're going to look at uh, the third chapter of Ezra. Uh, for those of you who... Uh, we're here last week, you know, we began a nine-week series in looking at Ezra uh, and Nehemiah. Um, last week I gave pretty lengthy background to give us some historical context, and I won't rehearse all of that, but for those of you who are joining us this morning, I just want to kind of help you understand a little bit whenever we're working through Ezra and Nehemiah, what that looks like. Um, we are reminded that it's around 538 B.C. when we get to uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 of Ezra. Uh, that is that we are seeing the first group of exiles that are coming back uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, they had been uh, in exile at that time, some of them more than 50 years, but most all of those that were coming back were about 50 years. Uh, and so we looked at Ezra and we divided it into two sections, chapters 1 through 6. Uh, 1 through 6 uh, uh, gets us through the building of the temple. Uh, and then there's about an 80-year gap between chapter 6 uh, and chapter 7. Uh, and in that 80-year gap, if you are wanting to read kind of chronologically through the Bible, then you would go and you would read uh, the book of Esther. Because Esther's, um, uh, Esther's life fit within that 80-year period. And then we get to Nehemiah, and then we would track along through Nehemiah. So there's that gap in there. So you have chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra. You have Esther. And then you have uh, 7 and following all the way through Nehemiah that covers the, the rest of that time period. But the point that we made last week, one is that this is about the last 100 to 125 years of the Old Testament. That is the period of time that's being covered. And then we have 400 years of silence, and then John the Baptist comes on the scene. And that's helpful for us because we are able to see in the course of that the things that God was doing before he shuts down, if you will, and does not send another prophet until just prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's some very important things that are taking place. And so our looking here uh, is to try to find out uh, what those things are. I want to share with you our aim today. In looking at this text, our aim is to live with a greater commitment to God's Word so that our mission is rightly informed 
our worship is pleasing to him and our vision and values are toward heaven. I'll restate that. You may want to just jot down a few of those words. Our aim today is to live with a greater commitment to God's word so that our mission is rightly informed, our worship is pleasing to him, and our vision and values are toward heaven. Now, uh, here's kind of how that's going to take shape. So for those of you who are note takers and you are looking for points, I'm going to give you our four points and then we're going to read our text uh, and we'll work through the text. One, point one is commitment to God's word. Second point is mission for worship. Mission for worship. So commitment to God's word, mission of worship, Need for atonement. Need for atonement. Uh, You've probably already seen this morning that we began uh, talking about worship, singing about that is what our purpose is, uh, and then we began to look at our need for atonement. We're going to revisit that in this text because that's what this text is about. And then the final point is the foreshadow of a greater temple. A foreshadow of a greater temple. Commitment to God's Word mission of worship, need for atonement, and foreshadow of a greater temple. Let's follow along as we look at chapter 3 of Ezra. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priest in Zerubbabel and the son of Shetel with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, They offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, at all the appointed feast of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrrhenians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord and Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. 
And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of the king of Israel. And they sang responsively and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Join me as we pray. Father, help us to understand your word this morning. Father, would you speak to our hearts through your spirit? Apply it to our minds and hearts. Burden us if that is necessary. Convict us for certain. Comfort us. Help us. But most of all, Father, work within us in such a way that our commitment to you, to your work, to your mission, to your worship would grow, be strengthened in us that the people will hear far away about your work here, the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. It's interesting, though not surprising, that the return to exiles had a renewed interest in God's work. I want you to think about this for just a little bit. Remember, they had been taken away from their homes. They had been taken away from their way of life. They left and had to leave other family members behind, those who were not exiled. And they left the center of their worship. They'd been taken away because they had sinned and turned from God. They had been taken away and they had been judged because they had abandoned the truth of God's Word. They had neglected it. They had disobeyed it. And God judged them for it. Now I want you to be reminded that um, all of this that has taken place in the, in, in the world history and all that was going on, uh, again, it is not a surprise and should not be a surprise for us. And it certainly wasn't just a coincidence. God's plans are carried out. He empowers world events and world leaders to accomplish His will. Was it a mere accident that the Assyrians in 722 B.C. came in and destroyed the northern kingdom and took them away into exile? And it was no accident that Babylon came uh, and raised up another world and became another world power and in 586 B.C. took Judah and the southern kingdom away. No, God had planned every bit of that. This was not just the mere rising and falling of political powers and military powers. God in His sovereignty planned and carried out 
his judgment on his people Israel through these nations and their leaders. I was reminded of that yesterday when I began to hear news of Israel's attack by Hamas and in their retaliation and their move. We think, oh, that's the Middle East and that's just something that's happening. No, it's not. God is at work in the midst of that. We don't know how yet, but it fits every piece of his redemptive plan. The Lord is working in all these affairs to bring that about. I want you to notice in verse 1, it says, when the seventh month came. Let's kind of think about that for just a minute. While we can't be certain how long the returned exiles had been back, it seems that Ezra is pointing to the fact that when the seventh month of their year came, that they stopped everything, they stopped everything and they came to Jerusalem. Now, if you go back and do a little bit of research, uh, it took them about four months to make their journey back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. And now they are at their seventh month. And that seventh month is a significant month because it is during that seventh month that they celebrate by God's direction the Day of Atonement. That they come together for seven to five days after that. They spend the next seven days living in, in tents and booths and things that they would put together with brush because God had commanded them to do that in the course of their celebration. And we'll look at that. But what I want us to see is, is that they were committed to order their lives, their work, their mission, and their worship according to God's word. How do we know that? We'll look in verse 2. The last part of verse 2 says, And they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. That's how we know that. They went back to the book of the law to find out when and how, and they gave their attention to obeying the word of God. Press on down there a little bit farther and you'll see there in verse 4. And they kept the feast of booze. How? As it is written. That's how they kept it. As it is written. And offered the daily burnt offerings by number. How? According to the rule. In other words, exactly the way that God had prescribed for them to worship is how they worshiped. They were intent on obeying God's word. Look in verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, and we'll see the significance of that, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. And then even whenever they began to lay the foundation for the temple and they've laid it, notice down in verse 10 what takes place. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priest and their vestments came forward. And what did they do? They praised the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. In other words, exactly what God's word had told them to do, they are intent on doing. They follow God's word. They obey God's word. Now, I wonder this morning uh, how we're doing in that area. 
If our attention is being given to God's Word, are we looking at God's Word, seeking out the details of His Word to direct us in our work, in our living, in our lives, in our worship? Is that where we are? I'm reminded of the psalmist's words in Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments." I'll praise you with an upright heart. What is it pointing to? It is pointing to the fact that I will worship you then. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. You see, Israel had had experienced the pain and the judgment for having abandoned God's word. And now they were starting over. Where are you? Are you at a place to renew your commitment to God's Word? Are you at a place where you know you need to renew your commitment to God's Word? Are you at a place where you have abandoned God's Word, maybe not just in absolute disobedience, but because of busyness or because of business? Have you moved away from listening to God and looking for Him in His Word? For what? To give us direction for worship. To give us direction for life. To point us to Christ. To help us to understand who He is. So that we can know what He wants. And then seek to obey it. Where are you? Do you need to renew today your commitment to reading and meditating, and praying, and seeking to obey God's Word. I want you to notice that not only were they committed to know and follow God's Word, but they were intent on worshiping God in the way that He had prescribed. Their mission was to worship God. This this whole chapter here is about their worship. It's about their worship. What did that ultimately mean? Well, it meant that they were about communing with God. They were about worshiping Him. Their whole mission in coming back to Jerusalem, it wasn't just to plant their fields and plant their vineyards and get about life back in a country that they had, 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 had been taken away from. And for some of them, they were born in exile, so they're coming to a country that they have only heard of, the place that God had promised them. But it wasn't just about getting back there, going home to live and to reestablish life. No, their whole purpose here is about worship. Their mission is worship. You've heard me share this before, and some of you have even read it. For those of you who have read the book, Let the Nations Be Glad, but I want to share with you Piper's statement regarding mission. Their mission was to worship God. And here's what he has to say. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. So when we're here talking, missions is not our ultimate goal. 
We talk a lot about missions. We want to be on mission. But that's not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is the ultimate goal of the church. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. Hear that again. God is ultimate, not man. Worship, therefore, Piper says, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we are simply aiming to point the nations to Christ. Those who do not worship Him so that they can come to worship Him. So even in our evangelistic efforts, even in all that we do as we're sharing the gospel with people who don't understand the gospel, who don't know the gospel, who've never heard the gospel, our point in that is, is that we are pointing them to God, not just for them in their salvation, but we are pointing them to God and His glory so that they will worship Him because God is ultimate. They are not. I'm not ultimate. You're not ultimate. God is the one who is ultimate and is the one who is to be worshipped. So the goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. The psalmist writes, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Be glad of what? Be glad because of who God is. To look at Him and see Him in His glory. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. But he also said that worship is the fuel for missions. Passion for God in worship will always precede any preaching of God. I hope if we get nothing else here that we understand that every time one of our teachers at Oak Valley, whether it be one of our pastors or one of our teachers in one of our children's discipleship classes or youth discipleship classes or adult discipleship classes, when you ladies meet here tomorrow and when the men meet here tomorrow morning, I hope, if nothing else, that all of those who will be before you presenting are coming across as if I believe this with my whole heart and I want you to know and to understand who God is. Why? Because that passion for God, because we believe Him, is what fuels everything that we do in the way of ministry. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You cannot commend what you do not cherish. I'm not going to tell you about a great restaurant if I've never eaten there and if I'm not passionate about what it is that they have to serve. The fact is, is that we are not going to share the gospel of Christ. We will not commend it if we don't cherish it. So our passion for Him will precede whatever it is that we do in the way of ministry. We're away from our identity series but I want you to look back over here just a minute. We keep telling you this is biblical, it is. What do you do? 
We love God supremely first. We are passionate about Him. That is the direction in which we want to be moving. That is the trajectory of our lives here at Oak Valley is that we love God supremely and then we will love others and live in the world distinctively flowing out of that. And that is not new to you if you've been here for the last three or four weeks or if you've been here for the last five years. You will know that that is what we believe. Missions begins and ends in worship. The exiles returned to Jerusalem and the surrounding area with the sole intent of worshiping God. Now I want you to pay attention to all that's happening here. I want you to see what they're investing in this. And this is a point for us. The investments that are made in their worship. Notice the significance of the month. That seventh month, this isn't isn't by accident. God brought them back, and as soon as that seventh month came, they stopped everything they did to go to worship the Lord. Now, and I want you to think about this for just a minute. These were exiles that were returning to their homeland. They didn't have houses. They were like they were going back. Those houses and all that had been there had been already occupied by the others who stayed in those areas. They went back to plant fields, to plant vineyards, to get their life in order. And they'd been there probably for a couple of months. And you know what it's like. Some of you have moved uh, and you have boxes of stuff maybe that's still left in your garage from... Maybe a year or 18 months that you have not yet emptied. We know what that's like. There's always these things to do. We could easy, easily argue for them that they should have been able to go back and get set up and get established for life and get everything about their affairs taken care of before they began to consider the things of God. But that is not what happened. When the seventh month rolled around, they stopped everything. And listen to what it says. They gathered as one man to Jerusalem. 42,000. As one man, 42,000 came to Jerusalem. To do what? To give their attention for that month to worship. And one of the first thing they did, uh, they, uh, they, they built the altar. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But this is the place that they came back to. On the 10th of the month was the Day of Atonement. Five days later, they would still be there celebrating the Feast of Booze, carrying out everything that God had told them to carry out. Think about that for just a minute. They could have said, we'll wait until the next festival before we worship. We'll wait until the next time. Kind of what we do sometimes when we miss a week from worship, corporate worship. Well, we'll we'll wait till next week. We'll go next week. And then next week doesn't come. And we know people who have been that way. And we know how people have worked through that. And this isn't to be judgmental or critical. It's just the fact that there are things here that we are pointing to where they stopped everything. They needed to complete some work. Maybe sometimes we just need to complete some work and we don't worship. Or we have things that we need to do today. Or, or we aren't feeling really well. Or we're tired and exhausted from the week. Their mission was to worship and they did not stop. 
they stopped everything else and they went to worship. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. What else do we see? Well, we see that they came to worship when? For fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. In verse 3, I kept chewing on that verse. It sounds out of order there. It says, they set the altar in its place, which was a part of them getting ready for worship. They set the altar in its place for fear of them because of the peoples of the land. Remember, they had moved back into other people's territory. That was their land. God had promised it, but they're coming back and we're going to track along through the rest of scripture and even into Nehemiah and we will see that they, they met all kinds of opposition. They're going back and they are afraid of these people, but even their fear of the people does not suspend their worship. In fact, we're hearing that they go to worship because they are afraid of the people. What does that tell you about them? I think for one thing, it says that we got people that are against us. We are afraid for our properties, our lives, we're afraid for our children. But we are not going to acquiesce to them. Not in a prideful way. We are going to rely on God. We are going to go into His presence and we are going to seek Him and we are going to rest in Him and we are going to call on His name and we are going to look at His Word and we are going to follow Him and worship Him. They got ready for worship. They got ready for worship. They prepared everything that they needed to prepare to come and to assemble in the presence of God and to worship Him. I was thinking about that earlier this morning. At about 2.30 early, I was thinking, getting ready to worship. Now, I'm not commending this and I'm not commending myself, but Sunday mornings are just a time that I want to be up and I want to be thinking about our time here, praying for our time here, and not everyone can do that. I, the Lord has just blessed me to where I need a little bit of sleep, and I sleep a little, and then I keep on going. But my point is, is I wonder sometimes what we do to get ready to come here for corporate worship. How much time do we spend uh, trying to remove the distractions from the past week or not take up the things that have not yet come for the upcoming week that take our minds oftentimes completely out of being there. And I know that that is not an easy thing to do and it doesn't happen with all of us all the time. But isn't there something that we should be doing to get ready to come into the place where we assemble to worship God? Isn't there some kind of mental and spiritual preparation? I'm talking about getting up 30 minutes ahead of time and just barely getting our clothes on and saying, Phew, I'm going to make it there. They spent all of this time getting ready for what was going to take place on the first day of the seventh month. They got ready and they stopped and they came and they were there to worship. I wonder 
if there is something there that we should give attention to and then ask ourselves this question, are we passionate about God and about the worship of Him and His name that we would take some time to get ready to worship Him, to engage mentally and spiritually and physically in Him. We just mentioned it. Um, But does this seem to be a small matter that their very first worship gathering was the celebration of the Day of Atonement? Chewing on this text, it's here. I, I don't think it's a small matter. I think it's by God's design. They had been removed from their land, their families, their way of life because of their sin. What needed to take place for them to be and spend the rest of their life in worship? They needed God's forgiveness. They needed to acknowledge their sin that had gotten them to where they were. And so the very first act of corporate worship for them was to do what? It was to get that altar in place. You read on. The foundation of the temple wasn't even there. They didn't have a building. It wasn't like we're going to start from the outside and work our way in. It's no, we're going to go to the very center of all that we are about. We need to be restored and renewed and made whole in God. And so the very first act that God has them do in the course of their corporate worship when they come back, the very first thing is to restore and put that altar back and begin to offer the sacrifices for the atonement for their sin so that they could be forgiven. That's huge. They stood in need of his forgiveness. Their sin was no light matter. It was so severe that it required death. Blood as a sign of life, had to be spilled for there to be forgiveness. Nothing that they could do in life in trying to reestablish life back in Jerusalem. Nothing. The planting of the vineyards, the, 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 the planting of crops, putting land back into cultivation, building houses for their family. Nothing about any of those things that all of us would agree are important but none of that, none of that would mean anything until they had gotten before God and been restored with Him and to Him through His forgiveness. None of that would make any difference without the joy of His presence. None of that would mean anything without intimacy with Him. None of that would mean anything if they could not come and worship Him. Reminded that in the very middle of this text, we see, and at the very heart of it, the need for atonement. You know, that's true of us today. We need to be 
atoned for. Our sin needs to be atoned for. We looked at that today, even as we looked at our confession and what that would mean in the way of our ability to be able to worship. It would have to be to worship Christ. It would have to be through Him. It would have to be through what He was going to do and who He was. And it was only through His atoning work that that becomes possible. Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. In other words, it was prophesied that He would die for the sins so that sin could be atoned for and that forgiveness could be enjoyed. So that reconciliation could take place. So that worship could begin. So that God would be at the very hearts of the people to love Him and to honor Him. Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21, said, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what was happening here on that day, that first season of celebration of Day of Atonement. They were being reconciled to God. And then we hear, through the Apostle Paul, for our sake, God made him, meaning Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, so that we could be restored and have fellowship with God. So that we could look ahead and claim the promise of heaven. So that we could sing this morning as we sing that Christ alone is our hope in life and in death. Paul, in writing to the church at Colossae, in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. In other words, gave us life, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do that? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and in that he disarmed the rulers and authorities to put them to open shame, triumphing over him. There was a need for atonement. They built the altar. They offered the sacrifices. Just kind of look back through that just a moment there and, and, and we'll see the, the, the extent of this. And then I'll point you back to our uh, assurance of pardon this morning. But notice what happens here. They offer sacrifices, it says in the last part of verse 3, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings when? Morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths. And all through the course of the Feast of Booths, if you want to look at it, in Leviticus chapter 23, it's just sacrifice after sacrifice and offering after offering. For seven days, all of these animals were being brought and slain on the altar, pointing to forgiveness. On that day of atonement, on that day of atonement, the high priest would come in and he would, he would sacrifice a bull on the altar 
for his own sin, consecrating himself to then come and be brought two goats of which he would cast lots to see which one would die and which one would be released. And once he cast those lots, he would take the one goat and he would sacrifice it on the altar, intercede for Israel and those uh, who bore that sin. And he would place that, if you will, he would put that sacrifice on the altar and then he would come and he would lay his hands on the one that would live and that would be released in the wilderness. And then this goat would be let go, picturing that sin was being taken away. And Christ accomplished all of that for us. Pointing us to a greater temple. I want you to look at this in verse 10. And when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple, and if you're wondering why we skipped that part of the, of the other building of the temple, we'll get to that next week. But when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, which well, again, was the Feast of Trumpets. All of this was a part of, 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 of what God was doing even then in the second month in coming and resounding, resounding and pointing to the glory of God. And the sons of Asaph were symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But then I want you to hear this. But, but the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, the old men, who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. There were many shouted aloud for joy, but there was joy and there was weeping and there was anguish and there was heartache in the course of all of this. Why? Because they were there at that place being reminded of what once was that would not be again. They were standing in the ruins of the very place that they would come and gather for these same feast 50 years before and even before that. I tried to imagine what it would be like to go and stand uh, in those ruins. And, I, and I've thought about uh, places like Europe after the bombings during World War I and World War II and folks going back in these, these great buildings and the places where they had lived and played and laughed and, and grown up as children and they're standing in these ruins. Well, they're standing here in the ruins of the temple and I can imagine them looking over and saying, I never went in there because I couldn't. But the Ark of the Covenant used to sit right in there And while none of them were alive, when that first temple was complete and the glory of God came down upon it and filled it, they remembered hearing that. And every time they would come to this place, they recognized we are coming to where God resides here. But there is no Ark of the Covenant. 
And there is no holy of holies. And they are reminded that it will not be back like it was. And they are looking ahead and yet they don't know what that looks like. Is there hopefulness there? Yeah, there's hopefulness there. But what is it saying to them and what is it saying to us? What it is saying and the point here is this. What once was was great and now it's destroyed. What is is not that even that good. But if God is going to complete this work, there has to be something better. This was not going to be the end. It was not going to fulfill the greatest need that they would have. It was not going to fulfill the needs of all that people would have in coming after them. It was pointing to Christ and a need for Christ just in the same way that when you and I look to the things of this world to somehow try to find completion in life, we don't find it. Whatever level of success we reach, we do not find fulfillment for the rest of life. This isn't the end all be all. We were kind of nomadic and we're here but this isn't the end all be all. This isn't the completion of things. Christ is. Christ is. I was thinking, working through this text, foundations laid. Did you know that 500 years after this foundation is laid, that Herod was still working on this building? 500 years after they laid this foundation, Herod was still working on that building. They were still working on that building when Jesus was taken to the temple. They were still working on that building when Jesus stood in the temple. And if you will, turn over to John chapter 2 because I want you to see what he has to say about it because this is the reason that this text is so incredibly important because it is coming at the end of the Old Testament and what we hear even in the way of this temple, we come to find out what Jesus has to say about it in John chapter 2. Looking in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and where did he go? In the temple. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned tables. Now I want you to think about this in light there was a group of people that gathered 500 years earlier that were intent on worshiping God. And 500 years removed, and it's not, God is not being worshiped. God's not being worshiped. And Christ comes there, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 46 years to build this temple. Well, no, it had taken 500 years to get it to where it was at that point. 500 years. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. I want you to know there's a very physical sense in that. But it is pointing to a temple that is built because of the temple of his physical body and it being raised up. And then he said this, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 48, these very words were recalled. Jesus' own trial. They are gathering, uh, offering, uh, offering evidence, so to speak, for the reason why he should be killed. And this is what they recalled. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. What temple is that? What temple is that? The answer is found in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, and I want to invite you to turn there, and we'll read this, and we will pray, and then we'll move to the table. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. This is coming from John, the same John that we read in John chapter 2 a moment ago, the same John that recorded what we read earlier in John chapter 4 in our confession. This is the same John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with who? With man. What temple was he building? What temple was going to be destroyed? What temple was going to be raised? His body which in then would enable every believer to be a part of his body and become the temple of the Spirit of God here so that in looking ahead to him and in his fulfillment that the place where God will dwell will not be in the Holy of Holies, but with who? With man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
And Debbie, it may not happen here, but there he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What former things? Things that were left incomplete and were visibly incomplete that day when there was joy and mourning because of what was not when everything ultimately was pointing to, but he's coming. He's coming. The Lord Jesus is coming. And then about 500 years later, what happened? The Lord Jesus came. He came. Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful today that you have atoned for our sins in Christ Jesus. That he has borne your wrath, taken on our sins, that you have forgiven them and you have removed them as far as the east is from the west. We are grateful today, Father, that even in the midst of things that are yet incomplete, that we are looking ahead to a day where everything will be whole and complete. Because you have promised it. And you have made all preparations for it. Help us as we look ahead to you. As we seek to hear you from your word and be committed to your word and walk in it as we seek to be on mission about worship here and wherever it is that you take us, as we order our lives around your word, and as we live, Father, with our vision and our values on heaven, where we will be with you and see you and love you and know you and worship you and declare your glory and to bow at your feet and to experience every good thing in you as you have kept and held those things for us for glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.